Okay, our text for well, not our text for tonight, but our topic tonight is the the third temple, and so we have a project that we did, and we looked at several different uh, words in the Bible. We looked at temple, sanctuary, and Jerusalem, and uh, throughout from Matthew to Revelation, and really to do the study correctly, we should do from really Genesis to Revelation. But we're getting an idea on how to how to study the Bible this way. You take a topic. And you look up all the words that would pertain to that topic, and you look at all the verses that pertain to that topic, and you put them into columns so that you can understand what that word means, um, and if it has more than one meaning or more than one application. And so that's what we did with this topic of the temple. So if we want to know if there's a third temple, where it is, what it's going to be like, uh, we have to look up all the words in the Bible for temple, sanctuary, Jerusalem, or anything along that line. And uh, we saw it fell into several different columns, and, um, and if you're watching the video and didn't see, didn't get the, the sheets that everyone had to fill that out with all the text, then just email me at rabbi at jewishheritage.net, and I'll email you the copy, and you can do the, the homework assignment as well. Okay, and we found it fell into several different categories. Uh, the tabernacle that Moses built, right, so while we were in the wilderness, and that lasted for uh, close to 400, 500 years through the book of Judges all the way to the time of David, all the way to Solomon. So it was called the sanctuary uh, or the tabernacle. Then the first temple that was built by Solomon, and that also remained for about four or 500 years from Solomon's time all the way to when it was destroyed uh, by Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And then we saw some, we'll see some text, well, there's a column for some text that Yeshua is represented by the temple, and then believers as represented by the temple, and then the heavenly new Jerusalem listed as temple, and then the second temple that was in Jerusalem and remained into Yeshua's day, uh, built during Zerubbabel's time with Zerubbabel and, and Haggai and Zechariah and Yeshua, son of Uzadak, um, and then Ezra and Nehemiah coming along and helping along with that a few years later after the starting of that. And so that second temple that continued also for uh, several hundred years until, uh, and then became known as Herod's temple, same temple. Herod remodeled it, put some more money into it, and so it became known as Herod's temple. And uh, that lasted until 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed that. So that was the second temple. So then a third temple that hasn't been built yet, and then the category of other, anything that doesn't fall into any of those topics, any of those categories, okay? So let's take a look at these one by one and compare them with your notes. So this first one, the tabernacle that Moses built. Now, I didn't find any, um, any uh, Bible text between Matthew and Revelation that specifically applied to that. Uh, there is one or two verses that that could fit into that, but they also apply to the second temple. And so I put them into the second temple. I think it was Hebrews um, 8 or something like that. Did anyone have any, any verses that would be in this? And of course, if we did from Genesis to Revelation, we'd find tons and tons of text in the Torah and other places talking about referring to this temple, this or tabernacle rather, or sanctuary that, uh, that Moses built. Did anyone come up with a text? Uh, verses that match that. Otherwise, we'll go on to the next column. 23, 35. Matthew 23, 
verse 35. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, he lived during the time of the second temple. So that would have been followed. Uh, that man was uh, killed in the temple, but that would have been during the second temple, not the first temple tabernacle. Okay? All right, so let's look at our next area. The first temple built by Solomon. Lasted from Solomon's time to being destroyed by, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Again, I didn't find any text that specifically applied to, to that one. Again, if we were reading from Genesis uh, to Revelation, we'd find a ton, a ton of text in, uh, in, in the books of Kings and Chronicles uh, talking about that temple. Okay, anyone have any, any text in that column? Okay, let's go on to the next one, Other. Okay, for Other, I found Acts chapter 14, verse 13. The priest of Zeus whose temple was in front of their city, right? So he's talking about a temple to Zeus, right? And so that would be other, we really could have labeled this other as pagan temples. Right? That was a pagan temple, a temple to Zeus. In Acts chapter 19, verses 27, 35, and 37, all three of those texts talking about a temple to the great goddess Diana, or what's described as the great goddess Diana, right? So that's a pagan temple to her. And then in Romans chapter 2, verse 22, uh, do you rob temples? And again, referring to the temples in the Roman kingdom. Uh, and so again, the pagan temples, such as the ones just mentioned uh, in Acts. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10, uh, eating in an idol's temple, right? So obviously it's an idol's temple, so it doesn't meet any of our categories. It's another pagan temple, idol's temple, right? Anyone have any texts that we missed on that that fall into that category of other? Okay. All right, we'll go on to our next category, Yeshua as the temple. In John chapter 2, verse 19 and verse 21, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's pretty clear, right? Destroy this temple, and it tells us clearly in verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body, right? And uh, that's kind of an interesting text because... Uh, in the book of John, it mentions that. It's not mentioned in the other Gospels, quoting Yeshua saying that. But in two of the other Gospels, and I forget which two it is, and maybe it's Matthew and Mark or Matthew and Luke, I forget which two of the other Gospels, it mentions somebody saying during the trial against Yeshua, them coming forth and saying, this man speaks blasphemy, this man said he's going to destroy this temple, and that he's going to build up this temple in three days. And when that person's saying that, He's not referring to Yeshua as the temple, as Yeshua was when John chapter 2 uh, was referring to it, but he's referring to the literal temple, the second temple, uh, Herod's temple, that was standing there in their day. And he says, he's going to destroy that building and build it up in three days. What a nut. He's crazy. No one can do that. Right? And so he's referring to that second temple. But I found this very interesting because that's mentioned again in two of the other Gospels, but it doesn't mention in those Gospels what Yeshua actually said. And then John actually tells us what Yeshua actually said, but John doesn't mention that people misquoted him and took his words and twisted them and misunderstood what he was saying. So that's a good example of why we have the four Gospels, right? Because they said different, they bring it all together. We get all the truth together. 
Or some mention something that was quoted, and others mention something else. Because without John's mention of what Yeshua actually said, those other two texts, those people misquoting Yeshua, we really don't have the context of what on earth are they talking about? What do they always say? They're accusing him of saying he's going to destroy that temple, the building, and build it in three days. What on earth are they talking about? Well, John tells us that at one point he said, referring to himself, that his body is going to be killed and that he's going to be raised on the third day. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Then in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, right? So Yeshua, the Lamb, is the temple. And so again, another very clear text giving us this analogy that Yeshua is also like a temple, right? That his body is a temple. Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, now, in this verse, it doesn't mention any of those words, temple, sanctuary, or Jerusalem, but it came to my mind <coughs> in context of this, and it really does fit. Coming to him as to a living stone, some versions have it as chief cornerstone, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Right? So it doesn't have the word sanctuary or tabernacle or temple or Jerusalem, but when it says spiritual house, what's it talking about? What's a spiritual house, right? A, tam a, 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 a sanctuary, a tabernacle, right? Or the spiritual house, God's temple, right? It's a spiritual house. So he's saying that Yeshua coming to him as a living stone, the stone, the cornerstone, a living stone, but you also as living stones, all of us are built up upon him, the chief cornerstone, we're built upon his foundation. We as living stones are built together upon him, making up a spiritual house, right? A tabernacle for God, a sanctuary for God, a spiritual house for God. And that's a very important text that helps to bring uh, these categories together, Yeshua, as a, a temple, as well as um, the next column, believers as a temple. All right, so these are the texts that we have for that. Well, before I guess we go to that column, did anyone have any other texts that are missing for Yeshua as the temple? As the other than these three, John 2, 19 and 21, and Revelation 21, 22, and again, then the addition of 1 Peter. Okay? All right, so we're all together on that. So let's now look at the next column of believers, and we have several texts that say this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, don't you know that you are the temple of God? And that's an important phrase, temple of God. Keep that in mind, temple of God, right? You are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defies the temple of God, right? Those four words, the temple of God. God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, very similarly, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? All right, pretty plain, right? So that 
Yeshua's body is a temple. We also are temples. He is a chief cornerstone. We are also fit stones building up his temple. Your body, you are a temple of God. Right? Pretty plain. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, you are the temple of the living God. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Right? So kind of similar to that first Peter text, the whole building joined together, all the living stones built together grows into a holy temple. Right? A, uh, a holy a tabernacle for the Lord. Spiritual house for the Lord. And then Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, make him a pillar in the temple. Right? So uh, that we make him, make believers, a temple. Right? So a pillar in the temple. So we're part of the living stones. We're pillars. We're part of the temple. We build up the temple. We make up the temple of the living God. Okay? So that's pretty clear. Right? So we have the believers also as a temple. Yeshua as a temple, believers as a temple. And of course, we have the literal uh, temple, the tabernacle that Moses built. We have the literal temple that Solomon built. Let's go into our next. Did I miss any text? Anyone have any other text for your believers that would fit into that category? Okay, so we're all together, all in harmony there. Okay, all right. The heavenly, or the new Jerusalem as a temple. Lots of texts on this, right? So uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. The Jerusalem above is free, right? So if it's above, it's in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem above is free. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2. In heaven, the true tabernacle, the Lord erected, right? So very clear, in heaven, there's a true tabernacle that the Lord erected. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, very clearly written there that there's a heavenly Jerusalem, there's a heavenly temple, heavenly tabernacle. Revelation 3, verse 12, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. Right? So this new Jerusalem is in heaven and it comes down out of heaven. Revelation 7, verse 15, before the throne of God in his temple. And then in uh, Revelation 11, verse 1, 2, and 19, uh, one of those verses, I think it's 19, so it gives us the context for that chapter. Revelation 11, 1 and 2, don't specifically say where that temple is. It says the temple of God, but then in 19 it tells us the temple of God was opened in heaven. And so in the context of that chapter, we see that he's talking about this temple of God, this, this temple of God that's in heaven. Revelation 14 Verse 15 and 17 specifically mentions the temple in heaven. And then in Revelation 15, verse 5, 6, and 8. Uh, and in chapter 16, chapter, verse 1 and 17, it says temple, refers to temple in some of the verses. And then I think it's one of the verses in Revelation 15, I think it's 15, 5 maybe. And in Revelation 16, I think it's 16, 17, it mentions that it's in heaven. So again, in context of the chapter, not all the verses specifically say the temple in heaven, but when you read within the chapter, at least one of those verses out of the two or three that's in that chapter tell us it's talking about a temple in heaven, the heavenly temple. 
And certainly as we see in Revelation, from Revelation 3, Revelation 7, Revelation 11, Revelation 14, Revelation 15, Revelation 16, that is referring in context of this heavenly temple. Okay? And then Revelation 21, verses 2 and 10, it tells us the new Jerusalem descending from heaven, similarly as it said in Revelation 3.12. Okay? Those are a bunch of texts and a lot of texts. Anyone have any text uh, that fit under this category of temple in heaven, New Jerusalem, heavenly temple, anything like that, heavenly tabernacle, tabernacle in heaven, uh, that would add to this column? Okay? All right, good. But we see how clearly these fit into that category, right? All right, so that's, again, how you do, again, a Bible study. So you see all these, so you want to do a study, you want to talk about the heavenly temple, you've, you look up these words, temple, sanctuary, tabernacle, Jerusalem, and you find all these texts, and now you can have a whole sermon or a whole Bible study or a whole teaching on the heavenly Jerusalem, as opposed to the second temple or the first temple or the sanctuary that God had Moses built or, or, or something else. You have a bunch of texts on this topic, and so you've segregated them from the other texts, so you can understand which one it's talking about, and then you can come up with a theology regarding that. Okay? Very good. All right, next one. The second temple, the one that was built by Ezra and Nehemiah, or rather by uh, Zerubbabel and Yeshua, son of Uzadak, and, and uh, with the help of uh, Haggai and Zechariah, and again later on then, Ezra and, uh, and Nehemiah. Yeah, and it continued to Yeshua's day, also became known as Herod's temple. The second temple, we have a bunch of texts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? All these texts in the gospel. We went up to Jerusalem. They went into the temple, right? All these various texts referring to that second temple. And then uh, again in, uh, in the book of John as well, a whole bunch of texts there. And the book of Acts, a whole bunch of texts there. Referring to Jerusalem, Paul went to Jerusalem, came out of Jerusalem, they went into the temple, various different texts along that line, just talking about what they were literally doing in that temple that was there in Jerusalem that was there. And then even into Romans and 1 Corinthians, uh, these texts here in Galatians and in Hebrews and um, I think it's one of those texts, I think maybe Hebrews 9, 1 and 2, that uh, just talking about that there were sacrifices in an earthly tabernacle. And that would refer to this one, but it would also refer to the sacrifices that were in Solomon's temple. It would also refer to the earthly tabernacle that Moses built. There were sacrifices in that. So if those texts, I think it's again Hebrews 9, 1 and 2, that would apply to really those three columns. And it's talking about the earthly tabernacle, earthly sanctuary, and earthly um, sacrifices that were given there, it would apply to, again, all three of those tabernacles, sanctuaries, temples, Moses, Nehemiah, Ezra's, Herod's, <laughs> and as well as um, Solomon's. Okay, any questions on that text? I know there was a bunch there, but this takes us down to now there, our last column, all right? And our last column is the third temple in Jerusalem. Now, the only one that most, the only text that most people mention in this um, column, and someone who couldn't be here tonight emailed me and said, the only one I found was this text. Did anyone find any other text that fell 
would fall into this category. This third temple in the future in Jerusalem. Because there's a lot of teaching about that. There's, there's books written about that, movies made about that, books 100 pages, 300 pages, books and books and books and books on, uh, on this topic. Uh, if you go to a Christian bookstore, if there were bookstores anymore, but online or whatever, you can find tons of information, tons of videos, tons of sermons, movies, all kinds of things about this third temple in Jerusalem uh, in the future. Anyone have any Bible text other than this text that would fall into that category? Now, uh, we'll get into Ezekiel's temple. We'll get into Ezekiel's temple in, uh, in a little bit. Um, but from the Matthew to Revelation... Any text that talk about this, a third temple, other than this text? I have Revelation 11, too. Now, yes, okay, Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. Um, that could actually fall under other. It's kind of a little vague. But why don't we read that and, uh, and see what, uh, what it applies to. Okay, very good. Revelation 11. 1 and 2. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot. 42 months. Now, this is Revelation. We've seen all the other texts in Revelation talking about the heavenly temple, the new Jerusalem. And in this very chapter, verse, we're in chapter 11, Revelation 11, verse 19 tells us, then the temple of God, so we have that, those four words all in a row in a phrase that was mentioned in verse 1, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. So in context of this chapter, seems that he's talking about this temple of God is the one that's in heaven. And to measure what's in heaven, measure those that are worshiping there that are in heaven, in that temple, in that tabernacle. But don't measure those that are outside that temple that's been given over to, as it describes, given over to the, to the Gentiles. Don't mention, don't measure that in this chapter anyway in this context and then it mentions because they're going to trod down the city for 42 months now we're in revelation we've done daniel in revelation we've seen this 42 month period of time mentioned seven different times referring to the 1260 year time period uh, that um, of the dark ages and so here on earth the trampling down of god's truth but in heaven god was still there with all his created beings worshiping him. So I think in context, that's what it's referring to. And again, within that chapter, just a few verses later, it says temple of God in heaven. But either way, just on itself, verse one and two is kind of vague. I mean, it doesn't specifically say where it is, just measure this temple of God and to say that, you know, that is, that's kind of hard to build up. So, and then even if we couple it with this text, we're talking really only three verses, Revelation 11, 1 and 2, that's two of the verses right there, so really combined, and then this verse. Now, even if it was all three of those verses, we don't build a Bible doctrine, a Bible theology, and again, uh, Revelation 11, 1 and 2 is 
certainly vague. And we're going to get to Revelation, uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, in just a minute, exactly what it says. But the point is that we don't ever build a doctrine, a theology, on one verse or three verses. Usually if two of the verses are together, running together, there's only really just like two verses. You don't build a Bible doctrine that way. That's not stable. That's not grounded. That's not how we do Bible teaching. That's one of the purposes of this study. That I had you do the homework so we can see we had a whole bunch of texts for the New Jerusalem and Heavenly Temple. We have a whole bunch of texts of believers that way. So you can come up with a theology based on that because you have a whole bunch of Bible texts and scattered in many different books. And that's how you build Bible teachings, Bible doctrines, is by building up the text that come together, that say the similar things on a similar word, on a similar topic, and you get them together and they come together in the Word of God. Not building it on one verse or two verses. That's very dangerous. Certainly not to write a 100-page book, a 300-page book, make a whole movie, a whole sermon on one verse or three verses. And this verse here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, which is the one that's most quoted regarding a third temple. In Peter, in 1 Peter, the last, or 2 Peter, the last chapter of his book, Peter tells us, our beloved brother Paul, so he likes Paul, our beloved brother Paul, right? has written many things that are hard to understand, which unlearned people have taken and have twisted to their own destruction. All right, so he's talking about his beloved brother Paul. He's a good man. He loved Paul. Everything that Paul wrote is good and true and right and holy and just and, and in harmony with the whole Bible. But some people have taken some of Paul's writings, because they're hard to understand, Peter tells us, and they've taken his truth and they've twisted it, just as those people did with Yeshua's words, where Yeshua said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They've taken it and they twisted it to think that he was talking about the literal building of marble. So they take, Peter tells us, people have taken Paul's writings and have twisted them to their own destruction. So especially because of that caution by Peter, when we're reading Paul, we need to read him in context of all the rest of the Bible to rightly understand him, that he's in harmony with the whole Bible. Not take a verse by him and make a whole doctrine on it when Peter already tells us some things are hard to understand and be careful, don't twist it to your own destruction. Right? Does that make sense? How right, we see that? The harmony of that, the the the... the the logic of that. Okay, so let's look at this text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, which again is true and right. And Paul, again, everything he wrote was true and right and good, rightly understood. And the way to rightly understand any of Paul's writings or any verse out of the Bible is to compare them with all the other texts on this topic. Right, so just like we did, look up all the texts on that topic. So let's look at this verse and look at it and view it in, 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 in comparison with all the other verses that we just saw on this topic to come to a right conclusion, a conclusion that is in harmony with the rest of the Bible, with the rest of the texts that have to do with a tabernacle, sanctuary, or temple, or Jerusalem. Okay? So let's look at this text. 
concerning, let's get in context, let's go back to verse 1 of this chapter, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua Messiah and our gathering to him, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? What day is it referring to? The day of the Lord. That's in the verses just before. The coming of the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, when we're gathered to him. That day will not come unless there is a falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, and the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. All right, and then we're going to continue reading some more verses, but before we do that, let's look at these verses, these first seven verses. And the verse four is right there in the middle. Okay, concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and our gathering together to him. Right, so in context, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him. Believers gathering to him. Right? Let no one deceive you. So starts with this. Don't be deceived. There's a lot of misinformation. There's going to be a lot of misinformation regarding this topic. Regarding this verse. So don't let be deceived by it. Don't let anyone deceive you on this. Rightly understand it. Read it in context. Read all the verses around it. Read all the verses in the whole Bible regarding this topic. Don't be deceived by any means that that day, the day when the Lord comes and gathers us to himself, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So when it says that the, that the, that the falling away must come first and the man of sin be revealed, that's coming first in relation to what? What comes after that? What comes second? What is that coming first before? The coming of the Lord, right? That's what they're saying in context, right? The coming of the Lord and our gathering to him is going to happen. But before that happens, first something else has to happen. First, there has to be a falling away and the man of sin be revealed, right? That's what it's saying. Now, I guess before we get into more of this text, I need to uh, reference back what is commonly taught, most popular teaching regarding this text and this third temple in these books that I mentioned and these videos and these sermons. Okay, what's most commonly taught is that there's going to be a third temple built in Jerusalem And that sacrifices are going to be reinstated. It's going to be an altar. And there's going to be sacrifices there. There's going to be a priesthood there. And uh, Levites and Kohenim ministering there. And that the anti-Messiah is going to come to that temple and sit in that temple and declare himself as God in Jerusalem in the future. And another part of that teaching is that that is going to happen after Yeshua comes. That Yeshua comes and he raptures away the righteous and he leaves the wicked 
And then the man of sin comes, and the man of sin comes, and he goes and sits in that temple, declares himself as God, and enforces the mark of the beast. And in the last seven years, or some say three and a half years, and another three and a half years, various different interpretations of that. Okay, that's the common teaching, right? If you've ever heard that, right? I'm seeing some nodding heads, right? So you've heard that teaching uh, like that. So now let's again look back at the text itself. So again, one of the things that's commonly taught is that Yeshua comes, raptures away the righteous, and then the man of sin comes and sits in this temple. But what does the text actually say? The coming of the Lord and our gathering to him will not come until the falling away, and we'll get into what the falling away is in a minute. Falling away comes first and the man of sin being revealed. So clearly, according to the text, the man of sin, the son of perdition, is revealed first, before the coming of the Lord. Not after the coming of the Lord. He doesn't go and sit in the temple after the coming of the Lord. He comes first. He's revealed first. And there's a falling away first. And then comes the coming of our Lord Messiah and our gathering to him. So already they've twisted, very clear, first couple verses. Okay, then it says, who opposes, okay, also it says, son of perdition, but then in the back of your mind, we're going to come back to that very important phrase. Again, four verses, the son of perdition, right? So very important phrase, we're going to come back to that, that's going to help us to understand what exactly Paul was talking about here. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God. So again, we have those four words, the temple of God. That phrase, we've seen that phrase several times already. In context, we've seen that phrase, the temple of God. In particular, where did we see that phrase in relation to? What was some of the other columns we saw? The temple of God. Know ye not that your body is the temple of God, right? Same phrase by Paul. So Paul using that phrase in, in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, and I think it was also in Ephesians, right? Or these other places he uses it. He uses the same phrase, and now here he's using it in 2 Thessalonians. Same writer using this phrase, and that's what you do. Okay, what does this man mean by this? Here he uses four words in a row, this phrase. Where else does he use it? And what does it mean where else he's using it? That's how you rightly study the Bible. Comparing the phrases, especially by the writer. To get from himself what he's talking about there. Because if there was a third temple built in Jerusalem, and they reinstated sacrifices there, would that be a temple of God? Is God calling us to reinstate sacrifices? Now, why not? We already have that sacrifice. Once and for all. There's no more need, the Bible, book of Hebrews tells us. There's no more need for any more sacrifices. Because Yeshua himself has become the one and true eternal sacrifice. He's died for sin once and for all. So any attempt to have sacrifices to receive forgiveness of sins... Certainly wouldn't be a temple of God. It might be a man-made temple. It might be a man-made effort to try and bring forgiveness of sins, to bring atonement. But it wouldn't be God-ordained. 
It wouldn't be the temple of God. It would be the temple of man. Maybe funded by a bunch of groups. Maybe done by a bunch of a group or a group, bunch of groups. And encouraged for whatever reasons. Maybe even for good reasons. But it wouldn't be the temple of God. And if an anti-Messiah comes and sits in that temple, it certainly wouldn't be the temple of God. As far as a literal temple that God ordained to be built for that purpose. We'll come back now and put all this together and see exactly what Paul's talking about. But he also tells us here in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So this man of sin, this son of perdition, was already at work when Paul wrote this. Now, if he's a man of sin, an individual, this, and that's how it's normally taught, Again, some anti-Messiah comes and he sits in a literal temple and he sits there and proclaims himself as God. Like a Hitler or some bad guy who comes and sits there as an individual. But if he's already, this mystery of lawlessness is already at work in Paul's day, then that's one long living individual. Right? Other than Yeshua, God, angels, no human has lived that long. Because it's not talking about an individual, this man of sin, this son of perdition, this mystery of lawlessness is not an individual, but it's a system that's been around from at least Paul's day, and we're going to see that, all the way through to our day and to the end, this lawlessness. Okay, so now with that, let's continue to read in context in this chapter, the next few verses. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay? So now we've read, in context, 11 verses, or 12 verses on either side of this verse 4. And Paul hasn't elaborated more on a third temple being built in Jerusalem and a person living there, right? There's just, just one verse, verse 4. But in context of the whole thing, in verse 8 it said, The lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. When is the lawless one destroyed? At his coming, at Yeshua's coming. Lawlessness is revealed, so he's revealed before the Lord comes. Not the Lord comes and the righteous are raptured away, and then this lawless one, this anti-Messiah, this son of perdition, this man of sin, sits in the temple of God, proclaiming himself as God. No, because he's revealed before the coming of the Lord, because what happens at the coming of the Lord? Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
So it's not at his coming, he goes after the coming, he goes and says that at the coming, he's destroyed. He's consumed. If he's destroyed and consumed at the coming of the Lord, can he go and sit in the temple of God in Jerusalem? And for three years, three and a half years, for seven years, or however long? That'd be pretty hard to do if you were just consumed, if you were just destroyed. Again, right there just in the text itself. If we just read the verses on either side of it, it's very clear. But just like Peter said, people have taken a verse from Paul and have twisted it to say exactly the opposite of what it's saying to their own destruction, as it says here. We'll come back to this some more, but let's look at that word, son of perdition. I think that's the next slide. Yes, where else? So again, as we said, you look up a text, you look up a word, you look everywhere it is, and there's only one other place in the Bible where this phrase, the son of perdition, is mentioned. So it's there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, and it's in one other place of the Bible. So to rightly understand it, or maybe it's verse 3, uh, verse 3, but just before, just the words right before verse 4 starts, to rightly understand what Paul is talking about when he's talking about this son of perdition, it's important to know what the Bible refers to is the son of perdition. Right? That's how you do it. So let's look in the Bible to find where else this phrase is used and see how it's applied there, which will help us to understand what Paul is talking about. Okay, and for that, we go to John chapter 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, this is Yeshua speaking, he's praying at the last Passover, the last supper. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who's he talking about there? Judas. At the last Passover, he told them, one of you are going to betray me. And they said, who is it? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Yeshua said, the one who dips with me. And Judas dips with him. And then Yeshua says, what you do, must do, do quickly. And Judas goes out. And the disciples don't even catch it. I think he's going to go buy something for the Passover. None of them is lost except the son of perdition. So the son of perdition here in context is Judas. Now, who was Judas? Or what was Judas? Here it says, while I was with them in the world. Who is Yeshua talking about when he says, I was, when I was with them? Who's the them? The disciples, right? So he's referring to, and what was Judas? He was one of the disciples. So the son of perdition is among the disciples, among the congregation of the Lord, of, among the believers. He's a professed believer, so professed, so good, so in tune with it, acting the part so well, that even when Yeshua gives them such a clear sign, the one who eats with me and dips with me in the bowl, the one who takes the matzah and puts the kharoset on it and eats it with me. He is the son of perdition. He is the one who's going to betray me. 
Even though it's so clear, the son of perdition looks so much like the rest of the disciples. Looks so much like all the believers that the other 11 couldn't even imagine that it's him. He's sitting among them. He's sitting in the midst of them. And they can't even tell that he's not one of them. Thus making it the ultimate deception. And that's what Paul's talking about. That this lawless one is not going to come along like a Hitler, like a Stalin, like a, uh, like a uh, atheist. No, he's going to come like Judas did and sit among us. Sit in the congregation of the Lord. Sit in the temple of God, the people of God. Sit among us. And we won't even know it. And won't even realize it. The mask is so good that it deceives the whole world. And all the world, except those who have the seal of God, will wander after the beast. Because he's sitting among, as a professed, as a counterfeit. So cleverly designed and so masked that no one can tell the difference. Just like Judas. Sitting there among, as a professed believer, even as a treasurer. Sitting right next to Yeshua. Eating with him. So close they're dipping together from the same bowl. So now let's look at what some other people, how some other people have interpreted this 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Martin Luther, the leader of the entire Lutheran denomination. The kingdom of Babylon and a very antichrist, the man of sin and the son of perdition. What, text is, what Bible text is he quoting from? That's a whole bunch of verses. What's it, six, seven, eight words in a row? The man of sin and the son of perdition. What is he quoting from? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, right? Or really verse 3, right? So in context, this is what Luther is talking about. That very verse. Babylon, so you're talking Revelation, Babylon, end times. Babylon, the very Antichrist, is the man of sin, the son of perdition, who by his teaching and his ordinances increases the sin and perdition of soul while he yet sits in the church as if he were God. Now he took, what's, where's he semi-quoting from there? He sits in the church as if he is God. He used the word temple, right? He took the word temple and he switched it for church. But he's quoting from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, where in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it said that this lawless one, this son of perdition, this man of sin, sits in the temple of God as if he were God. And Luther says, that's not talking about a third temple to be built in the future. He's talking about the church. He's talking about among professed believers, just as Judas was there among the professed believers. He sits in the congregation of the Lord in the church as if he were God. All these conditions have for many ages been fulfilled by the papal tyranny. So Luther clearly 
applies 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 to the papacy. Very clearly. Now, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what would happen first before the coming of the Lord in conjunction with the man of sin being revealed? Apostasy are the words that it uses. There would be a falling away. Luther clearly says 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 applies to the papacy. Do Lutherans today still teach that? Nope. They have fallen away from their original teaching, their original beliefs, their original doctrine, especially on this topic have dramatically twisted, have dramatically fallen away, right? Because in order to fall, can something fall if it's laying on the ground? What does it have to be in order for it to fall? It has to be standing upright. It has to be standing up, right? In order to fall, right? So at one time, they were right. They were, had it right. And they've fallen away from the right doctrine that they had and are teaching Twisted doctrine. Okay, that's Luther. Let's go to another denomination. Let's go to John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterians. He is Antichrist. Some persons think us too severe and censorious when we call the Roman pontiff Antichrist. I shall briefly show you that Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 are not capable of any other interpretation than that which applies them to the papacy. Just like Luther. Now, when we studied Daniel and Revelation, we saw the papacy clearly identified in Bible prophecy, but what chapters did we see it in? In Daniel and Revelation, Daniel 7, and Revelation 13. And there's another parts as well, but those texts, those chapters very clearly, we saw 10 different points clearly identifying prophetically way in advance, pinpointing that there's no other power, no other system that would fit that description. We saw it from, again, Daniel 7, Daniel, Revelation 13. Lots of verses, lots of texts. But Calvin says, I can just show it right out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That he is the anti-Messiah power. Do the Presbyterians still teach that today? No, they don't. Has there been a falling away as Paul prophesied there would be? There most certainly has been. Let's go to another person. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist denomination. He is the man of sin. He is, too, properly styled the son of perdition. What's he quoting from? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. He it is that exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, claiming the highest power and the highest honor, claiming the prerogatives which belong to God alone. And so he also. Do Methodists teach that today? No, they don't. 
So the Protestants who were protesting the sins and the false doctrines of the papacy of the Catholic Church have all fallen away and now has slipped in this futuristic teaching. And so there is no gap. We've seen that. There is, we're, we're, we're up to Revelation chapter, we're going to do next week Revelation chapter 17. So we've done 16 chapters in Revelation. We've done 12 chapters in Daniel. We've done 26 chapters of Daniel and Revelation prophecy. And we haven't seen anywhere where it says put a gap in there of about 2,000 years. There's no gap. There's no gap theory at all. That's been inserted in there. That's part of this falling away that has taken place. There's no seven years at the end. The 70th year, the 70th week comes after the 69th week. There's no second chance after Yeshua's coming. When Yeshua comes, as we saw, Yeshua comes, he destroys, as we read in 2 Thessalonians, he destroys with the brightness of his coming, the lawless one, and he gathers the saints together. So simultaneously in that very chapter, he gathers the saints, the coming of the Lord, and the gathering are gathering to him and the destruction of the lawless one with the brightness of his coming. We've seen sheep and goats, wheat and tares, good fish, bad fish, the sickle going in for the harvest in Revelation 12, and the grapes being trampled underfoot, all taking place simultaneously at the coming of the Lord. Righteous taken to heaven, wicked destroyed. As in the days of Noah, Noah was taken and saved, the wicked destroyed. As in the days of Lot, Lot taken out, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed simultaneously. Over and over and over again. There's no second chance. And the 70th week comes after the 69th week. No gap in there. Right? Someone asked me uh, the other week, when is the 70th week of the prophecy? And I said, well, come after the 69th week. When you ask any fourth grader, what comes after 69? He's not going to say 2,000 years. And a fourth grader, a four-year-old. You ask a four-year-old who can count to 100. What comes after 69? 70. Now, 2,000 years later, there's no gap. There's no second chance. But the very power that the Protestant reformers, Luther, Wesley, Calvin, the Anabaptists, all of them pointed to and were protesting so no, 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 we don't like that. We don't like being pointed out. We don't like the light shining on us. We don't like being revealed. The man of sin being revealed. So they propagated a second theory, another theory, futurism. It's not applying to us. It's all in the future. And besides that, you're not going to be here anyway. We're not going to be here anyway. The righteous are going to be taken up. And then all of that stuff's going to happen. So you're not even going to be here. So don't even think about it. Don't even read about it. Don't even worry about it. And he propagated and propagated, and after several hundred years, it seeped into Protestantism. And then a falling away has happened, where these clear, plain truths have been twisted to our own destruction. Because if we don't know where to look for the anti-Messiah, for the lawless one, and the spirit of lawless one was already involved in Paul's day. Rome was already there in Paul's day. And Rome then, Rome, uh, Roman Empire, papal, pa pagan Rome, was replaced by 
the Holy Roman Empire. The iron legs of Daniel chapter 2 became iron and clay feet. Still iron all the way. Rome and then Rome. Pagan Rome and then Papal Rome. The spirit of lawlessness already at work and is continued at work. Was at work in Luther's day and is at work in our day as well. And he's been revealed. The Son of Petition has been revealed. Revealed tonight. Revealed as we studied. Revealed in Luther's day. In Calvin's day. In Wesley's day. Been revealed. And the falling away has happened. So what happens after the falling away and the Son of Man is revealed? The coming of the Lord and our gathering to him. There's not much left that has to happen. There is no third temple. The man of sin is revealed before Yeshua is coming. That's what it said in 2 Thessalonians. That the coming of the Lord and the gathering to him will not come unless a falling away happens first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. That happens first, not after he comes. And there's no third temple. We looked at together, we looked at every single Bible text from Matthew to Revelation that used the word temple, that used Jerusalem, that used sanctuary. And there was no text, zero. The only one they can quote in sermons and movies and books is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. And we just saw it's not applying to a third temple. It doesn't even say there's going to be a third temple. It just says that a man of sin is going to sit in the temple of God. Well, so then they reason, well, if there's going to be a temple, if he's going to sit in the temple of God, then there has to be a temple built for him to sit in. But again, it wouldn't be the temple of God. And we've already seen that phrase, the temple of God, applies to believers. Just as Judas sat among believers. We are the temple of God. And he sits among us. Not in some third building. Now, I'm not saying they're not going to build. Satan would love to deceive us. We'd go along with that and maybe build a third temple. I don't know, but it still won't be the temple of God. Even if they did. But they don't have to. Because the man of sin is already sitting in among. And all the world is following. And is already encouraging lawlessness. Believers are not raptured away beforehand. The coming of the Lord and our gathering to him will not happen unless first the falling away and the man of sin. We're not raptured away beforehand. We're taken at his coming. And the spirit of lawlessness is already at work. Yeshua and believers make up the temple of God. We saw a bunch of texts on that. Yeshua is, destroy this temple, talking about himself. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the temple. The lamb and the, the Lord are the temple thereof. And we are the temple of the Lord, built up fit stone. He's the living stone, the chief cornerstone. We are living stones. Yeshua and believers make up the temple of God. And the son of perdition sits among us. Not as one of us, but just as Judas sitting there professing to be one of us, while at the same time plotting his own devices and encouraging lawlessness. So let's look at this text again, now in light of all that. 
concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and our gathering to him. Let no one deceive you by any means. So he starts this process by saying, don't be deceived. A deception is coming. And we just saw a whole bunch of deceptions that have come out of this futuristic teaching that has come from the papacy itself, from the Jesuits itself. For that day, the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped. And we've seen lots of quotes from the papacy itself saying, we have the power to forgive sins. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. That we are God on earth and we are infallible. The, the Pope's position is infallible. The vicar of God, the representative of God on earth. Opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Opposes by the doctrines that oppose. Not in opposition, again, denying there's a God or denying a, that there's a Bible. That would not be a deception. That would not be sitting in among. Judas did not say, oh, don't follow Yeshua. He's not the Messiah. He followed right along. But at the same time, working against him. At the same time, plotting against him. So professing to be God and have the prerogatives and authority of God here on earth so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I have the power to change times and laws. We read the quote from the papacy. Papacy has the power to change times and laws. How do you have this power? Because we did it and everybody follows us. That shows that we have that power, shows that we have that authority. Shows that we are God. We're sitting among the temple of God and we make this decree that Sabbath is on Sunday and look, everybody's following us. That's the reasoning they use. We read those quotes from the catechisms. And the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So that same spirit of deception was at work in Paul's day and continues today. Not again an individual, but a system there can be individuals saved among the Catholic Church. The popes themselves can be saved. It's not for us to judge. God will work that out. They can be deceived themselves. And yet sincere in their following of the Lord for the amount of knowledge they have, that's not for us to decide. God will decide. But it's a spirit of lawlessness. It's a system that's been going on down through the ages. What is lawlessness? What does that word mean? Lawlessness. Mystery of lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Disobeying the law. Right? No law. There's no law. The law has been done away with. There's no more law. We have no more need of the law. That's what's taught. Law has been done away with. That's spirit of lawlessness. And the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So again, he's destroyed at the brightness of the coming, at the coming of the Lord, not afterwards. There's no second chance. There's no seven years. There's nothing afterwards. That seven years goes along with the other years that's already been fulfilled. Not in the future. It all came after the, where, where the rest of the years, the rest of that prophecy fits. One prophecy, not others. Not broken, not a gap in the middle. And the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. He started this chapter 
let no one be deceived. And then he goes on the other side of this text and says, lying, satanic lying wonders. And that's what it is. People are under a satanic delusion. Building, writing whole books, whole sermons, whole movies without any Bible texts. One text taken and twisted. And you make a doctrine out of that? That is a satanic delusion. That is a satanic lie that has swept over the world, that swept over the Protestant world, that has caused the falling away. Verse 10, with all unrighteous deception among those who perished because they did not receive the love of the truth. Refused the truth, refused the law, refused the Messiah's sacrifice and atonement and resurrection and power of his Holy Spirit to give us victory over sin. Deception. That's revealed the anti-Messiah already. It's built up a whole doctrine of futurism that's thrown everything into the, past, into the future. With unrighteous deception. In verse 11, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. It's a pretty strong delusion. When these founders of these denominations were very clear on it, and yet now millions of people are caught up in this satanic lie, this satanic delusion. Again, the disciples could not even recognize that Judas was it, even though Yeshua gave them a very plain and clear example of proof that he was. And here we've had to wait till this point after 28 chapters to get to this point because the delusion is so strong, it's so embedded in people's minds that we presented it in the first, it'd be hard to grasp and see. But after 28 chapters, we've seen there's no gap, there's no second chance, who the anti-Messiah is, and that he's not in the future. And now in reading all the texts, that's why I gave you that long homework assignment to look at all those texts, to break this strong satanic delusion that there is no third temple. There is no cap. There is no second chance. Not all the texts are in the future. It ends at the coming of the Lord. Not a seven years, not a second chance afterward. A strong delusion that has come that they believe the lie that has caused a falling away from those that were once strong and upright denominations, upright, following the Lord, the knowledge that they had at the time, have fallen away. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but who had pleasure in unrighteousness, in lawlessness. We have the truth compared with the deception, the delusion, the strong delusion, the satanic lying wonders. And that's in context of this text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now it's for Ezekiel. So what is this Ezekiel temple? I guess before we get there, if you've been caught up in that strong delusion, it's again a satanic delusion. 
It's going to take more than just a decision. Okay, yeah, I read the text. Okay, I saw the text. Reasoned it out logically. And now I decide to not believe that anymore, but to believe God's truth. That the 70th week comes after the 69th week. That the anti-Messiah power is a lawless power. There is truth and error. It takes more than that. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take consecration. It's going to take surrender to God. It's going to take God's power. It's going to take the blood of Yeshua to break this satanic delusion. We've been tied up into it for years and heard it over and over again. It's a satanic delusion. So before we go any further, in your mind, pray, Lord, deliver me from that. If you were caught up in that, deliver me from that thinking. Deliver me from that lie. And give me your truth. Fill me with your truth. Regarding your everlasting gospel, as well as the son of perdition, the anti-Messiah. I may follow your truth. You know, if the disciples would have taken Yeshua's warning regarding Judas and grasped what he was saying when he warned them about him, they might not have fallen like they did. Now, fortunately, they got back up. But not everybody gets back up when they fall. If they would have known that, oh, he said, the one who dips with me, that's Judas, and he just left, he's the one who's going to deceive him. Then when they met him in the garden, they're in the garden praying with Yeshua, and Judas comes with the mob, if they would have said, oh, that's what Yeshua warned us of. This is the deception. Yeshua is right all along. And what he's right when he said he's, this body is going to be destroyed and he's going to be raised in three days, they might have been able to put it all together. But since they were so deceived and so deluded, they couldn't see Judas for what he was. They were thrown off kilter that night and were fearful and went running away. Didn't know what was going to happen. Because they didn't see that. Yeshua knew what was going to happen and warned them ahead of time. If we believe this strong delusion, and we're looking in the wrong place, or we think it's not going to happen here, and then the plagues and these other things start happening, we're going to panic. And we'll go running away. From the Lord. That's what the disciples did. They ran away from the Lord. Again, praise the Lord, they came back, but they had opportunity to. We might not. The Lord is coming. Don't get caught up in the strong delusion because it can affect us, as Paul specifically says, that we'll be condemned, that we won't be saved. We need to come out of Babylon, come out of the confusion. And follow God's truth and his light and his righteousness. Regarding Yeshua, regarding who he is, regarding his salvation, regarding his sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his great love for us. As well as what he warns us of regarding the anti-Messiah. And again, it's not an individual. It's the whole system of the lie. Of unlawlessness. Of lawlessness of unrighteousness, of opposition to God's truth, to God's word, to fantasyful thinking, if it's all in the future. He sets us free from that. God exposes that. He reveals that. Okay. So pray that. Let's continue on. Let's look at the Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 40, there's several chapters in Ezekiel on this. Yeah, six, seven, eight chapters, I forget how many. Bunch of chapters on this temple. And in chapter 40, 
Verse 2, it says, In the vision of God, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a measuring rod in his hand, and he went to the gateway and measured. And so he's measuring this temple. And we have verses and verses and verses of going forth and measuring this temple. Now, to get this in context, we have to know when Ezekiel lived. Ezekiel lived after the first temple, after Solomon's temple was destroyed by Babylon. And we were taken captives, almost everybody, into Babylon. And almost no one is living in Jerusalem. And there's no temple in Jerusalem. There's no services. There's no sanctuary. There's no sacrifices. We're in Babylon. Ezekiel's in Babylon. And while he's there, there's no temple. The second temple hasn't come yet. Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra's, Herod's temple hasn't been built yet. There's no temple. And he's there and God shows him this vision of this temple and gives him these exact dimensions, verses and verses. Measure the gateway this long, this high, this wide, this pillar, this, that, this, this steps, this height, everything, very detailed. Throughout the whole building, windows, the windows this big, this high, doors this big, everything. Between doors this much, between windows this much, every very little detail. A complete blueprint. It's like he had to get permits and he had to fill everything out and explain it exactly in detail on how to build this temple. And in verse chapter 43, Ezekiel 43, verse 18, and a bunch of verses along this line, it says, and these are the ordinances for the altar, for sacrificing burnt offerings on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the Kohanim. And in chapter 45, verse 22, and the prince shall prepare for himself and for the people a bull for a sin offering. Now, if God was giving Ezekiel a vision for a building of a third temple in our future, bypassing a second temple and jumping all the way to the third temple, if that's what God was showing Ezekiel, with all those detailed dimensions, would it be God's temple if there were sacrifices there? And Ezekiel is prophesying and saying, and he gives all, I have this altar in this area, and this is where you sacrifice them, this is where you kill them, this is where you collect the blood, this is what you do with it. All these details. Would that be God's temple? Would it be the temple of God? No, because again, we don't need a sacrifice anymore. Yeshua is the sacrifice. And if you haven't accepted him as your sacrifice, none of the rest of this matters. Accept him as your sacrifice. He is our ultimate sacrifice. He is our Sacrifice. He loves us. He gave himself for us as the temple, as the offering, as the lamb. He died for us. He was broken down for us. For three days he laid in the tomb. And on the third day he was resurrected for us. There's no more need of a sin offering. God's not going to have a temple built for a sin offering. Man may do it. Satan may do it. But God's not going to do it. He's already done it. So what was Ezekiel's vision? What was God giving to Ezekiel? Well, again, the first temple was destroyed. The second temple hadn't been built yet. God wanted another temple to be built. And so he gave Ezekiel the exact dimensions on how to build the second temple. Not the third temple, how to build the second temple. Did we build it? No. Why? When Cyrus becomes king, takes over Babylon, and says we can go back, only a few of us go back. Not everyone goes back. 
unless we don't have all the resources, we don't have all the muscle, we don't have the manpower, we don't have the skills, we don't have all the finances to build it according to the exact dimensions that God gave to Ezekiel. So instead, what do we do? We did the best that we could. And God blessed it. And God said that was good. You did the best you could. And the others who didn't come, well, that's sad. And people even cried out and they said, this is not even as good as Solomon's. So it certainly wasn't as good as what God showed Ezekiel. But God desired, so God gave the prophecy to Ezekiel so that we would build it and that a prince would come to it and that sacrifices would be offered from the time of Zerubbabel and Yeshua, son of Uzadak and, and Haggai and Zechariah all the way to Yeshua's day. And then Yeshua as the prince would come to that temple. That's what I believe God had originally designed, had originally planned. But we didn't fulfill it, we didn't build it, we didn't do it. So that's what Ezekiel's temple is about. Not some third temple. Again, a third temple of God, a temple of God will not have sacrifices in it. That covers really all the texts. Again, all the rest of the texts from Genesis to Malachi have to do with either the temple that God had Solomon built or Moses built or the second temple or also some phrases that we are and the issue is in the heavenly temple all in harmony with what we read from Matthew to Revelation. No third temple. So what is the third temple? From the text that we looked at, from the text that we gathered, what is the third temple? We had all those columns. What is the third temple? Yeshua as the chief cornerstone. We, as fit stones, united together, built upon him as the temple of God in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, that'll come down from God out of heaven. That is going to be the third temple. We had text and text and text. We had several texts describing Yeshua that way. We had several texts describing the people of God that way. We had several texts of the heavenly Jerusalem. You put all three of those together, and they are together. We are together with Yeshua, and we will dwell in the new Jerusalem, building up and making up as pillars of the temple of God. And that's the phrase, the temple of God, described in this way. We are the temple of God. Yeshua is the temple of God. We, together, united together as one together, believing God's truth, accepting his sacrifice, accepting his salvation, receiving his seal, resisting the mark of the beast. And again, if we think it's all going to be in the future, we won't be prepared and we won't realize that we're receiving the mark of the beast. The lawlessness. So we'll be under a strong delusion, thinking it's in the future, when it's right there among us. We'll be the temple of God. We'll have the seal of God. And then Yeshua will come and he will take us to the mansions he's preparing for us in the heavenly temple in the new Jerusalem. And there we will remain for him for a time. We'll get to that, how long a time, in a future chapters of Revelation. And then we will come back with him in the new Jerusalem.
at the appropriate time that the Bible tells us will be prophesied. We are that temple. God calls us to be that temple because Yeshua is that temple. And we want to be where he's at. Thus, joining together with him, making up the temple of God for all eternity. So as we pray together, if again, you've been caught up in the lie and the deception, some future thing, which can set you up for missing, not understanding the beast or the mark of the beast, then the moment we pray, haven't already, ask God to break that satanic delusion and to fill you with his truth, with his righteousness, with his holiness. Secondly, if you've been under the strong delusion of lawlessness, that the law has been done away with, we don't need God's laws anymore, or not all of them, <laughs> only nine of the ten, then surrender that to the Lord and ask him to write his laws into your heart and mind, to fulfill them in your life, and to walk in his truth and in his righteousness. Thirdly, and maybe I should have made this first, if you haven't accepted Yeshua as your Messiah, as your cornerstone, if you're not relying on him, if you're not resting upon him, if you're not built upon him, if your life is not built upon his word, upon his truth, upon his sacrifice, upon his death, upon his resurrection, then the moment when we pray, I invite you to surrender to God, accept his forgiveness, accept his sacrifice, accept his love for you, accept the Messiah into your heart and mind. And fourth, and with that, accept the Holy Spirit to give you the power to walk in righteousness, to walk in God's laws, to have his laws written in your hearts and minds and to fulfill his joy and walk in his joy and walk in his light. And fifth, if you want to be built up in the Lord, fit together, united together. Maybe you're just a stone following the Lord, but on your own. But he calls us to come together to unite together with Yeshua and with each other as a living stones together, as a building together, as a temple together. If you've been out floating on your own, come together, come together, unite together with God's people. By God's grace, are following his truth, walking in his ways, teaching his truth, and calling out Babylon for what it is. If you want to join together with God's people in a moment when we pray, ask God to bring you together and to unite you together and knit you together in God's truth and righteousness. Even while all the world, the vast majority, following and wandering after the beast and lawlessness and under a strong delusion, not even realizing who the beast is, who Satan is using and manipulating, so you want to come together and pray and ask God to bring you together, come out of Babylon and come into God's truth. So if any of those areas apply to you or maybe some other area God's speaking to your heart and mind about, let's pray together and let God do his work. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, thank you for the study. We learn how to read your word and to put text together and phrases together and rightly discern it. Thank you, Yeshua, that you are truth. Come into our hearts and minds and live in us. Give us your sound mind. Break the delusions, break the lies, break the deception. And set us free 
and fill us with your righteousness, with your holiness, with your Holy Spirit. Make us temples of the Holy Spirit. Make us temples of God. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your righteousness. Fill us with your truth. And walk in us and through us. Keep us from error. And use us in shining your light and revealing the spirit of lawlessness, this man, this power of sin, this son of perdition. In righteousness and in love and in mercy. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.